You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. How he won the big game, he said famously, if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> I think someone tweeted, Ray Lewis said that, and then San Francisco thought, we almost beat God. Like, we were three <laughs> points from beating God. Now, I don't know exactly what he had in mind when he quoted that verse in Scripture. It's indeed in the Bible, and Paul uses it. I think it was about winning the Super Bowl. Super Bowl. I don't know. It could be. But in any case, this is exactly what Paul is writing to correct over the last several weeks that we've been talking about it. This is what he's writing to correct. There is a triumphalistic Christianity that says God uses the strong. God uses the smart. God uses people who do all of their devotionals, the people who have a conservative past and a moderate and have moderate values. And if that is, if that is you, then God will be for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? It's a win, win, win theology. But the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ is a loss, and it was a loss. The cross was a defeat. The cross was a scandal. And it wasn't a defeat so that you can win all of your games. It wasn't a defeat so you can win that life, that you can win that career, that you could win that marriage. It's not, the cross was not a defeat that so you can win. The cross was a defeat to save the, the defeated. The cross was a defeat to save the defeated. So I'm very sorry, our, our brother Ray Lewis, our Christian brother, it's exactly how God works. God uses people like that for his glory. Ask Moses. Ask King David, ask the Apostle Paul, who are all murderers. Ask Jesus, who was a crucified as a criminal. Christians have a horrible proclivity to forget who they were and thus lose sight of who they are. We have this horrible proclivity to forget who we were. I think um, just something that, that, that comes to, to mind even right now, there, there's, there's a way in the church where we got in scandalously in the church. We should not be allowed in the church, but once we're in, we try to keep other people from, from being in. We sit around community groups and judge other people. Even though they're just very new to their faith, we judge them for not believing like we believe or having the values that we have. Dads do this really easily. The same sort of value is, is, is done with dads when they're girls get old enough to date and they forget what a hoodlum they were when they dated <laughs> their wife. Right? That's exactly, that's the exact same logic. It's like, yeah, I, I know this thing worked out, but not for you. I don't trust, like, it's that sort of thing. Do you forget who you were? Do you forget who you were before Christ saved you? This is what this text teaches us today. Of being a people of the cross, that's the title of today's teaching, being a people of the cross who are saved and shaped by the cross. What does this text teach us this morning? This is what it teaches us. It teaches us don't forget who you were, don't forget who you are, and never forget who did it all. 
This is what Paul is saying. Don't forget who you were. Don't forget who you are in Christ. But never forget who did it all. First, never forget who you were. Remember, uh, Paul here is right in the middle of contrasting the world's wisdom with God's wisdom. Look at, uh, if you remember, recall from verse 20 of last week. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, Paul writes? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. And so last week we contrasted the world's wisdom with God's wisdom. And the world's wisdom is how the world and the culture think. How the world and the culture define success. What the world values. This is the world's wisdom. What the world says about beauty. What the world says about power. This is the world's wisdom. And Paul contrasts that with God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is how God thinks. What God does. What God values. What God says success is. And if you apply the world's wisdom. How to become successful or beautiful or Powerful. If you apply the world's wisdom to your life, you will never find the power of God. You will never find the peace of God, the wisdom of God, or the strength of God. If you look at it in the world's, through the world's lens, through the world's focus, through the world's wisdom. Because the world's wisdom is antithetical and even an enemy to the way God thinks. The world's wisdom is antithetical and even an enemy to the way that God thinks. This is how James puts it in James chapter 4. James writes in a, another uh, kind of epistle towards the end of your Bible, James writes in James chapter 4, verse 4, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, is hostility against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What James is saying and what Paul is saying is that the world's wisdom and the world's way is totally antithetical to the way God does things. And if you are, as a Christian, aligning yourself up According to the world's ways, you are a functional atheist. You are functioning as if God did not exist. You are functioning as if the salvation that saved you is only good enough to save you, but it's not good enough to lead you in a life of peace and joy, a life of fulfillment, and a life of mission. And this is what James is saying. This is what Paul is saying. The two views are opposite, even hostile to one another. The world's wisdom and God's wisdom. The world's values and God's values. The world's power and God's power. See, the, the world loves power that crushes. The world loves success. The world loves victory. So that's what they when, they, when they go to look for a God, when they look for a Messiah, when they look for a vicar, a victor, not a vicar, a victor. <laughs> totally different qualifications for that. When, they, when the world goes to look for a savior or a messiah or a god, you would not come to the conclusion that it was Jesus. Because the way that Christ showed himself to be God and the messiah and the victor is completely different. And this is Paul's whole argument. This is not how Jesus came. Christ came humble. Christ came born in a manger. Christ came and died on a cross. And the Jew says that's a scandal. The Jew says that's a scandal because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the scriptures teach that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And they're going, okay, Christ hung on a tree. And you're like, well, that's, that's a curse. That's, that's a scandal. You, you can't be Messiah and hang on a tree. What they didn't understand was that Christ was bearing the curse for all of humanity. That's why he was hung on a tree. The Greek says that Jesus crucified is moronic. Because they want wisdom. It's foolishness, but it's true. 
Now, this is, Paul does this wonderful thing where he makes fun of you and you don't even know he's making fun of you. You know those smart people that do that? He says, do you want further proof that this is foolishness? Look at yourself. I love this. This is, I don't know if you caught the, 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 the change there and the, how he's kind of poking fun at the, um, at the church in Corinth. He's like, the cross is foolishness. You want proof? Look at yourself. This is a great backhanded compliment. Paul says, do you want proof that God uses the stupidest things, the most foolish things like a cross to save? Do you want proof that this gospel of Jesus doesn't use what the world thinks is strong or powerful or wise? Look around, fools. No, he didn't say it like that. <laughs> but that's kind of what he was like. Hey, that's kind of what he said. He goes, look around. Do you, you want proof that this is a foolish gospel? Look who was saved by it. You were. Look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of you when you were called. And they're probably going, okay, I will. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Like, wait. This doesn't sound like a compliment. Like, it feels like a compliment, but it doesn't sound like one. Not many of you. Now, notice it didn't say not any of you. A very rich um, uh, British um, person, I guess. I don't know. Um, said one time in a commentary, he said, I was saved by the power of a letter, M. He said, it, Paul doesn't say not any. He says not many. He was rich, and God saved him. You could be rich and be in. This is actually what was the conflict in Corinth. There was, Corinth was a, a socioeconomically diverse congregation. There's people who owned big homes, and that's where the church would gather, and there was people that were poor. There were people that were uh, at what, slaves, but they were freedmen, and they would move to Corinth to make a life for themselves. So there were these people. And then there were the rich, and then there were the very poor. Later on, we'll get into how the rich kept on taking communion because they didn't have to really work and so they showed up to, to their love feast early and they brought all the really good wine and all the really good bread and then they would get drunk and eat before anyone else had a chance to get off work and come to the love feast and join in. And Paul was like, okay, there is a disparity in your, you have some very rich people and some very poor people and you guys are not treating each other rightly. And then they were looking at Paul and they're going, Paul, when you came to Corinth, you weren't, you weren't anything special. You, you didn't have a really good message. I mean, we believed in you, but, but there's better preachers out there now. And so he says, listen, the way that you guys are trying to judge me and the way that you are judging one another in the church by human standards of wisdom, you didn't even have that coming into this thing. You had nothing when you came into this thing. When you believed you were nothing, were you wise according to human standards? No. Why do you think you're wise now? You're wise because you have the wisdom of God, but don't mistake that for human wisdom. He says, not many of you were influential. You might have influence in the church now in leadership, but when you got into this thing, you were not influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. You might be now sons and daughters of the king, but you were nothing when you got into this thing. Don't forget who you are or who you were before you came into this thing. Don't get puffed up and get haughty. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, he says. God chose. Now, there's a two-part application here. What does it mean that God chose the foolish things of the world? The first part of this is obviously the cross. It's foolish that Messiah, Christ, God in flesh, taking victory over his enemies, would submit to them and die on a cross. That's foolish. God took something foolish, the cross, and used it for, to show salvation, to show redemption, to show victory actually over his enemies. 
That's foolish. God chose a foolish instrument, the cross. But equally as foolish as the fact that you, that Christ used a cross is the fact that you're saved. That's equally as foolish. This is what Paul is saying. Just as foolish is the fact that you were saved. A cross is foolish and you're foolish. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What was weak? Well, again, two parts. The first one is Christ coming as a baby. That's weak. Christ, Savior, Messiah, born in a filthy manger, subjected to crying and nursing and pooping. Behold your God. That's weak. I mean, you could take his little baby head in your hand and crush it and kill him. God came in weakness. He came weak. But you know what else was weak? Choosing you. Because you're weak. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. Basically, now he describes it. And the things that were not. He chose nobodies. Who is a nobody? Well, first of all, Jesus of Nazareth was a nobody. Does anything good come come from Nazareth? Does anything good come from there? Jesus, we know your parents. There's no way that you could be Messiah. We know where you grew up. Jesus was a no one from from nowhere. And guess who he chooses? Nobodies from nowhere. He does that to prove the things that are, the the wisdom of the way the world thinks, the the way the world views worth and power and wisdom. He gives true worth and true power and true wisdom to the foolish. Now, here's a summary sentence of all that Paul is saying. This is foolishness, Paul writes. The cross is foolishness, and the church is foolishness. The cross is foolishness because it's bringing about salvation and redemption through an instrument of torture and death. But the church is equally as foolish because Christ is bringing about his rescue mission of the world through people like you and me. Through people like the church in Corinth. Who would choose a cross? To redeem humanity, who would choose the church to bring about this message with the church in its blemished history, its blemished, blemished past? Who would choose a thing such as the church that's foolish? God would. Who would choose someone like you? God would. Who would choose someone like me? God would. Guys, I'm from Bakersfield, California. I, had, I did two years of community college, and I did not graduate from community college. No degree. Kicked out of high school. Went to continuation school, where in U.S. history class and continuation school, when we studied Vietnam, we just watched Apocalypse Now. That was it. And the teacher was like an ex-Vietnam vet, and he would just mumble, that's how it was. That's how it was. <laughs> like, that's how it was. That's right. Okay. This is great. I have no idea why I'm here at all. I have no idea. I mean, I know it's everyone's favorite verse that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, but it's true. He does. Imagine if, if the president was choosing his cabinet, and when he chose his cabinet, he chose the most foolish and unpowerful, unimportant, uninfluential, uneducated people to fill his cabinet that didn't know how to wear a suit properly. All the suits were kind of too big for them, and they didn't really know how to tie a tie, and they were all sitting around the cabinet, like, making knock-knock jokes and, like, goofing off. (laughs) You would think the president has gone mad. He's crazy. 
But when God, the God of the universe, had the opportunity to choose, he chose the foolish, the weak, and the despised. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Why did God do that? Why did God choose people like us? Why did God choose the lowest common denominator? Why did God do that? And this is where Paul drops some amazing theology. Here's why. So that no one can look around and think it's from me. So that no one can be in this room and go, well, I was chosen because I, I, I went to Harvard. I went to Oxford. I, I'm chosen. I'm CEO of my company. I'm, I, I did a successful startup. No one in here. Because of the lowest common denominator, because the person who leads you right now in the Word is like a community college dropout, no one could stand here and go, well, you have to have a certain thing to be in. You don't. Listen to what Gordon Fee says in his commentary. God deliberately chose the foolish things of the world, the cross and the Corinthian believers, so that he could remove forever from every human creature, any possible grounds on their part of standing in the divine presence with something in their hands. Someone say amen or something. Like what he does is he removes from everyone, any, all of humanity, any way that you could stand before God and go, God, I have this thing. Like I got in because my parents were like godly. Nuh-uh, that's not why. I got in because I grew up in the right country. That's not why. I grew up, I got in because you know how much, you know, like what I would do for you once I got saved. That's not why. He did all of that so he could remove all of that to where you stand with nothing in your hands at all. Will you stand before God and go, I got nothing to bring you at all, God, nothing. All of it is what, I, like Isaiah said, is filthy rags before you. My best that I have to offer is nothing before you. Now, does God do this because he's, because God is incredibly insecure? Like, I, I just don't want anyone else, in my, I don't want you to bring anything because I'm insecure about what you have. That's not why. The reason why it is, it's because God has made it that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Rich or poor, powerful or weak, somebody or nobody, it doesn't matter. This means that there is no mountain to climb. There is no quest that you must first conquer before you are worthy. There is no spirituality that you must attain to. There is no superior wisdom or higher thinking you must achieve before you can come. There's only one requirement to come to the cross. Get over yourself. That's it. There is no advantage you possess before the living God. And by choosing the lowly Corinthians, God declared that he has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining his favor. If there is something that you're doing right now that you're thinking you're gaining God's favor, the cross says it's over. That's done. By choosing the Corinthian believers, by choosing people like you and me, God says that's over. There is nothing that you achieve to. You simply come to the cross and believe. That's it. This is why it's so common to hear God call us when we hit rock bottom. I hear this all the time. People come to, to God when they hit rock bottom, when, when it's the end of themselves. 
It's not that he doesn't call us when we're on top of the world, but it's at rock bottom that we're that what we held in our hand as our justification and our own righteousness gets knocked out and we're shown as filthy rags before God. It's the very time where, where rock bottom is when everything that you kinda, you've hoisted yourself up on, everything you built your life on comes tumbling down. You realize that that was a way that I was trying to be justified before God. That was a way that I was trying to be justified before myself. That was a way I, I tried, I tried to, to gain my own sense of righteousness, my own sense of worth. And when all of that comes down, you realize now when you're at rock bottom, all that's shown to be a sham and false. Sometimes when you're on top of the world, you don't hear that as clearly. If you just are in, wrapped up in the success of the city right now and I came to you and said, you have to come to Christ in weakness, that might not compute for you. You're like, but I have so much to give. I have so much to offer God. It's when all those things get taken away. It's when all those things are gone. They realize I have nothing to give to God. And God goes, I want you. I want you still, just like before, before when you had all the stuff. I still want you the same. And I'm calling you. You just didn't hear my call then, but you hear it now. This is why we go to the cross. The cross does the bottoming out, the cross is our intervention. The addict and the sinner is not coddled by false optimism but it's put to death at the cross so new life can begin like the song, that old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. This is the theology of the cross. This is what Paul is trying to get through the minds of the Corinthians so that they would live a life of humility. He would actually tell this to the church in Philippi that you are to have the same mind as Christ who humbled himself to the point of death. This is Paul's theology. Every church Paul plants, he wants that to be a cross-shaped, a cross-oriented church. Get the cross, understand the cross, let the cross humble you and live a life of humility, a pattern patterned after the cross. Because no man or no woman can ever say, I found God as a result of my good intellect. No one has ever been accepted by God because he was of noble birth. No one has ever performed deeds mighty enough to merit entrance into God's kingdom. You can't even boast that you were saved because you chose God and exercised faith in him because he was the one who chose you. God chose you. All you simply did was respond in obedience. You responded to the call of God. Now do you understand verse 29? Look at verse 29. So that no one may boast before him. Does that make sense to you now? No one may boast before him, rich, poor, slave, freedman, noble birth, humble birth. No one can boast before God. No one can stand before God with something in their hands. Now, to boast um, meant to take pride in or glory in. The Greek concept of boasting was very connected, comes very close to uh, an idea, the concept of trusting or something we put full confidence in. So Paul goes on in verse 29 to say this, let the one who boasts, let the one who takes glory, let the one who trusts boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Now this word boasts in Greek literature means that which gives you the most delight. The thing that you delight in. So Odysseus boasts in his cunning in Homer's Odyssey. And Achilles boasts in his strength. Christians 
boast in the Lord rather than the qualities or supposed achievements on their own. Because we know that those achievements or qualities never got us to the things that we, were, we thought that those things would give us. We thought that the things that we were going after, our strengths, were going to give us peace and deep abiding joy and security and, and hope, and they don't. So we boast in the Lord. See, only God gives those things, and he gives them with the people who come empty-handed. And then what Paul does, again, I'm going to skip ahead a lot here, but I want, you, I want to see how he rounds out his whole conversation with the Corinthians. He starts with this in chapter 1, and this is the way he ends in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's talking about him boasting. He goes, I have a lot to boast about. I'm not going to boast about anything. Actually, I will boast about one thing. I'll boast in the Lord. And then he talks about how the Lord gave him this ailment, this thorn in his flesh, he calls it. And he asked God, would you take away this, this, this ailment, this, this problem? No one knows what it is. It could have been many things. It could have been physical. It could have been spiritual. It could have been emotional. I don't, I don't know. He was just given this thorn in his flesh. He goes, God, would you take it away? And God said, no, I won't take it away. Because that thorn makes you weak. And he says this, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is a concept that Americans just do not get. That, seriously, I've been reading and praying a lot, and I still, I don't even know if I still really, truly, deep, deep, deep down in my soul get it. I want to get it. Power made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I will boast. No one like, we don't like to do this. It's hard to boast in our weaknesses. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. He delights in them. Remember, we just talked about in in Greek mythology, boasting gave you reason for delight. And so Paul says, guess what I delight in? I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul doesn't say not, he doesn't say when I win, then I'm strong. He says in weakness. But we don't like this. See, the only thing that you and I bring to our own salvation is our sin. That's it. That's the only thing you bring to salvation is your sin, your brokenness, your weakness. So in the same fashion as Peter's enthusiasm, remember uh, during the Last Supper, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter goes, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet, man. I mean, are you kidding me? You're Jesus. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your your feet, you have no part in me. He goes, okay, wash, wash my whole body. Like he's that enthusiastic about it. He's like, fine, is that, is that the case? Then do the whole thing. With that same sort of enthusiasm, Paul says this. Paul says, I delight in every weakness. If weakness is the way that brought me in to my, my relationship with Christ, if my weakness was the way that I met Jesus, if my weakness was the way that the cross gets in, if my weakness shows and reveals the triumph of Jesus, if my weakness does that, I will boast in my weakness. I want more weakness. I will delight in my weakness. I will delight in every difficulty and every hardship and every ounce of brokenness because it's an opportunity to invite the cross in. We don't, but that's hard for us to get. We invite the cross in. We experience God in 
beautiful sunsets. We experience God in like vic- victorious like music. We, and th- though that's a good thing, not any of those things are bad things. But Paul says there's a part of being a Christian that weakness and frailty and brokenness is a chance for the reality, the true reality of the cross to get itself deep into our hearts and our souls. This is why it's so confounding to man's wisdom. The world's wisdom is to try to be good and to get better at religion. So you're a Christian to get better at Christianity. But the cross tells us you can't do that in your own power. In fact, awareness of your sin is what draws you to God in love. Awareness of your sin is what draws you to God in intimacy. And awareness of your sin is what draws you to God in gratitude. And so Paul says, I will boast in my weakness. Because my weakness is how I got in. My weakness made me aware of my need of the cross. The cross is powerful, so actually, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Do you get his logic? The cross is powerful. I get to the cross through my weakness. So guess what? When I'm weak, I'm strong. Every time Paul is weak, every time Paul is, is, um, is persecuted, every time Paul experiences hardship, every time Paul experiences defeat and loss, he goes, cross of Christ, come in. I want to experience Jesus. I want to experience the power of God. This is why we can't forget who we are now. Because we don't go through a crisis of faith every time we're confronted with our weakness. Some people, when we're confronted with our weakness, we have this huge crisis of faith. We start like crying everywhere. Not that crying's a bad thing, but we're like, we just lose it. Like, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't know if I believe anything. I'm nothing. I'm a, and we have this huge crisis of faith. But if we truly understood who we are now in Christ, it doesn't twirl us into a crisis of faith. Our lows aren't really that low anymore. Because of Christ, we boast in our lows, and it draws us up. When we're weak, we're strong. When we're low, we get exalted. Do you see how this, and so we're not, when we're low, we're not like, oh, I'm low, and we start adding on shame and adding on all this defeat. When we're low, we go to the cross, and it exalts us. It lifts up our head. Now, this takes practice. This takes a lot of practice. This is hard to do, to get in the discipline of inviting the cross in with every failure. First, it takes you admitting your failure. Every small one, it takes looking, even looking at your past and going, this is where I failed in the past. And I invite the cross into that situation. I want to boast in that weakness. I want to boast in that brokenness because when I'm weak, I'm strong. And that, what that does, it doesn't leave us in this humble, like, not humble, but it doesn't leave us in this kind of Drowning in sorrow, the sorrowful sort of, you know those people that walk in a community group, they're mindful of their brokenness, but they look like they've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights? Like, not the fasting that Jesus says to do, like, put oil in your face and be glad, but like, like, I'm fasting. I'm like, God's breaking me right now, and like, it's, it's so hard, my life's so hard. Like, if that was true, if that, if that person truly understood the cross, they'd go, Christ is breaking me right now, and I'm getting closer and closer and closer to Jesus. Christ is breaking me right now and I get the, I'm sensing the power of God in me like never before because it's not me, it's Christ. 
That takes, that takes a lot of discipline. It takes inviting the cross in every single time and going, when I'm weak, I'm strong. And this is what Paul says in verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God. And then he defines what wisdom is. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. This is who we are. In Christ, this is who we are. We're, the, we're Christ's righteousness. God accepts us. Because of what Christ has done, we have been put right with God. We're in right relationship with God. We are sanctified. That is, we are made holy. We are beloved. We are made right. We belong to God. We're near God because of our sanctification that's happened in Christ. And lastly, we're redeemed. This is what the cross does. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. We are rescued. We are rescued from structural Hostile structural forces, including sin and power and bondage. And now we belong to Christ. And all this adds up to new status and new security and new identity as accepted members of Christ's family. We are people of the cross. The last thing, we are never to forget who's done all of this. We are never to forget who's done all of this. This is what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Jesus, the power of God and the wisdom of God, became for us weak. Jesus Christ, him crucified, took on flesh, and in his humanity he died an atoning death on our behalf. He took the death that we deserve. See, in life you'll never be able no matter how smart, philosophical, wise you get in the world's ways, you'll never be able to answer the big questions. Why are we here? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What does all this life mean? What happens when we die? All those huge questions, those big ones can never, ever be answered. How do we make peace with God? How do I find inner peace? You can never answer those questions with the world's wisdom. It's only divine revelation. It's only through understanding Christ Jesus and him crucified. When you get that, you get the whole story. Last week, I ended by telling you, showing you, walking you through Mark's narrative of the way he talks about Jesus' story. And I said that it was all power and all might in the first eight chapters. But something that happens throughout the entire book is that Jesus was, it opens up by saying, this is the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how the book opens. And for the rest of the book, Jesus is showing you that he's the Son of God. But every single time he does a miracle, he says something odd. I don't know if you ever read this in Mark's gospel. He says, okay, now go, don't go and tell anybody. You ever read that? He's like, don't tell anyone about this. Jesus like, heal, like throw, spits in someone's eyes, bam, done, like doing this. He goes, okay, don't tell anybody. And you're like, whoa, wait, What? Like, aren't, aren't I supposed to tell everybody? Don't tell anybody. Why? Something peculiar happens in chapter 8, like we said last week, when Peter says, I, this, this is what everyone else is saying about you, but this is what I say about you, Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he goes, you're right. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, my, but my Father in heaven did. And then he says, I'm going to the cross and dying. And he's like, you're not going to the cross. And then from then on out, Jesus is saying this. This is why. This is why he keeps saying, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody who I am. 
because nobody truly saw who he was. Jesus is not the miracle maker. He's not the guy who walks on the water. He's not the guy who, he's not, he's not that. He's not entirely that. He's telling everyone to be silent throughout the whole, Mark's whole narrative, and at the end, the very end, Christ is crucified. And there's a centurion that's standing next to Jesus on the cross. And this centurion has witnessed his, his crucifixion, his beatings, his la- the whole thing. He's, he's, he's there as an expert torture, and he knows when someone dies. And when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, he said this, truly, this was the Son of God. And then Mark says, exactly. And he ends his book right there. It starts like this, Jesus, the Son of God. You're like, well, I think I know who he is. I think I know who he is. And Mark goes, you don't know who he is until you see him on the cross. That's who he is. Christ Jesus crucified. The message of that to redeem us. The message of that to accept us. The message of that to bring us in and to redeem us from all of our sin. That is the message. And we are a people of that cross. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time in your word. I pray, God, that you would draw us, take us to these places of brokenness, not to wallow in them, not, to, not that we can experience shame, not that we could go down to these depths so we can just heap on ourselves guilt after guilt, but that once we go there in our own in our own minds, in our own hearts with you, in the cross, when we go to the cross, God, that you would lift up our heads. That you would save. And I pray that you would show this church, that you would show us how to be, how to look like a community shaped by the cross, and humility, and love, and self-sacrifice, and in weakness, God. We don't want to be a powerful movement in the world's sense, but a powerful movement in God's sense in that we're broken people that have been redeemed by Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.